Hello, everyone, and welcome to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I am your host, Adam Conover. As you may know, I am also the host of a show on True TV called Adam Ruins Everything. This is the podcast version of that show. We're currently in our off season, but you can find clips and full episodes of the show at TrueTV.com slash Adam Ruins Everything and the Watch True TV app. So look, on our TV show, we talk to a lot of incredible experts from the world of history and science and math and underwater exploration. Not the last one yet, but we're working on it. Might happen one day. Uh, on the show, we talk to those experts for eh, 90 seconds, three minutes. On the podcast, I bring them into the studio and we get to talk for the length of a whole podcast about the incredible work that they do because, uh, God damn it, I always have so many questions about it. When I talk to them on set during our lunch break, I always want to know more. And so that's what we are going to do today. Today's guest is Jan McKell Collins, who appeared on Adam Ruins the Wild West. Now, if you saw that episode, you know that we talked about how even though most of the history we're taught or that we see in movies about the Wild West is about these like strapping white men with guns who shot each other to death in the middle of the street. A lot of the history of the Wild West was actually formed by the women who went out there, specifically women in the prostitution industry. It's a huge part of the history of the Wild West that isn't usually part of the, you know, polite section of the textbook, but is a huge part of what made the West as we know it today. Jan is a historian who has written extensively about these women and their lives. She's the author of six books and is a contributor to multiple magazines that cover the history of the West. We are so excited to have Jan join us from Northern California via super scientific remote radio telephone today. Let's get to the interview. Well, Jan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, it's great to be on here with you. And thanks for coming out to our fake Wild West town, kind of in the middle of the desert in Southern California last (laughs) year. (laughs) I I had no idea there was such a place till I got there. (laughs) (laughs) No, there are a lot of them. I mean, basically, it's really funny if you look at – there's only a couple of Wild West sets as far as I know. And uh, uh, I think a lot of different shows that do Wild West, you know, uh, episodes will sort of be on the same set. So if you watch, you know, I don't know, some other uh, TV in our budget range that might do Wild West stuff, you might see some of the same buildings. (laughs) Right. Well, I guess it's been used for a long time as a movie backdrop. So I and I was trying to find a list. Actually, I think I did find a list of movies that have been filmed there. So it's pretty pretty prolific plays. Really? You did? Well, that's the that's the true historian in you looking that up. Do you remember any offhand? I don't. I don't. But they went way back (laughs) to like the 50s. And so really, yeah. So that was pretty awesome knowing that we were walking where Jimmy Stewart walked and James Garner and all those old old West movie guys. Oh, you didn't even tell me that at the time. I had no idea. I didn't have a chance. <laughs> you were busy. <laughs> yeah, it's true. We are really busy on set. Well, I, I, I thanks so much for coming in to talk to us today. So how, I have to ask your study, your field that you uh, that you study prostitution in the Wild West is so specific yet so fascinating. How did you first become interested in it? Um, you know, I, as a child, my uh, my family vacationed in Colorado a lot, but other places as well. And my, my mother really was a big influence in getting um, me interested in history. You know, it was kind of like rather than listening to my sister and I fighting in the back seat, she always had a history book or something in her hand. And she'd go, oh, look where this happened. And, and let's stop at this ghost town. So we did that a lot. And I, I grew up on Little House on the Prairie and, and uh, various things. And in my college years, I was bartending, and I was in an old neighborhood, the um, old Colorado City, which is the west side of Colorado Springs, and there was an elderly gentleman named Red Bus, and Red used to come in. 
he lived at a local home for the elderly, but he would take the bus every day and and basically go bar hopping. And mm. I was chatting with him one day, and he told me that the old red light district was just one block down the street. And um, he was, um, I think, 11 years old when the town's biggest madam died in 1918. Her name was Laura Bell McDaniel. Uh-huh. And yeah, and he remembered her. He remembered how what she looked like and the way she dressed and the fine way that she carried herself. And he would see her walking along the street. And um, so he kind of really impressed upon me a, a memory of not just some old hooker, but this really regal type businesswoman. Yeah. And yeah, so I got interested in researching her. And then I found out about all these other women that worked down on that street, and it just kind of blossomed from there. Wow. And and so it's interesting, though, before we get into the specifics of, of what that history is, that, that really what you present is kind of an alternate history of the West, right? Or or you're, you're looking at an area of the history that is not that often covered. And I think that's really interesting because so much of the time, you know, the Wild West is one of those periods where sometimes the myth takes precedence over the real history. That when people are saying, oh, I'm really into Wild West history, really they're into the part of the history that we learn about in movies or, you know, pulp novels and, and you right. know, the sort of version of it that America has been telling itself for the last 130 years in, you know, uh, in fiction uh, rather than the, you know, the actual the actual history. And, and, you know, they ignore we end up ignoring so many parts of those stories. Is there any anything that that drew you to look at those sort of unexplored byways of history or? I Yeah, um, it intrigues me because, you know, as, as you put it in a nutshell, you're not going to see a class on prostitution history pop up in school. <laughs> so, um, And there is a shameful aspect to it. And most cities, there, and they are still out there today, Waco, Texas is one of them, they do not want to admit that they ever had prostitution in their midst. But huh. where there were men and where there was money to be made, you were likely to find a red light district. And of course. Yeah. And so um, it is a hidden part of history. And I think it uh, needs to be and deserves to be recognized um, because it was such a prevalent industry. The The women that worked in the industry did a lot of unseen, unappreciated things um, that were kind of glossed over by their by their local governments, um, you know, and kind of hidden from view. So wishing to stay away from the Hollywood hype and the, the stereotypical <laughs> saloon girl, I it is my pleasure actually to uh, bring them back out in the open and recognize their accomplishments, their achievements, um, recognize that they were human beings and pay tribute to them in that manner. Right. Because we, we always forget that, you know, our study of history ends up being, you know, sort of focused around, I think, you know, it's called the great man fallacy or, or whatever that, that we focus on. <laughs> fallacy uh, is one word. You were close. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yes, you're, you're quick. <laughs> you're, but you are exactly right. It is it has been a man's history um, for so, you know, for a long, long time, way too long. And amongst the other women that are now being recognized, I'm very pleased to see all women being recognized um, in history. But uh, but we still have these hidden gems, and the, and those were the madams and the working girls. So tell us about how the um, about how the history of prostitution really shaped the Wild West. Then, um, well, it's interesting because there's a lot of hypocrisy in government, and anywhere you look at prostitution, you're going to see that. But I look at it this way. Uh, when you look at it on a timeline, 
Um, basically, the men came west to find their fortunes, um, usually by prospecting and mining. And in those early days, especially when you're looking at like the 1840s, the 1860s, all the way up till the 1880s, women did not come west generally. They were left behind to mine the kids, manage the homestead until the man was successful, and then he would send for them or go get them. Um, of course, there are exceptions to that rule. There were a lot of wives that came out, but you look at um, the ratios in population, like in Leadville, Colorado, in 1870 or 1880, the ratio of men to women was 60 to 1. Cool. Right? And that, that's, a, that's an amazing number. And yeah, that's so, like Smurfs numbers. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so these women, when they came out, um, it was important to them that they were successful. And part of that success was making sure that any camp, town, city, any settlement they were in was successful as well. Because the more the population grew and the wealthier the town was, the more business they could do and the more money they would make. And mm -hmm. so, um, and again, we have to remember that these women, um, you know, they were human beings. They, they felt, they had hearts, um, they had emotions. They, you know, one of the mysteries about them is I want to know things like what was their favorite color? What did they do? On Sundays mm. when working girls had the day off, that sort of thing. But in order for their towns to succeed, they were contributors. And so they were not beyond contributing money so uh, that the town could build a church or making sure that um, there was a school so children could go to school. And there are many instances of this. Um, one person I, I really admire is Madam Laura Evans, whom you mentioned on your show, because uh, she literally was her own uh, social services when there was not such a thing in existence yet. And she was known to um, hire, you know, anybody to work for her. A lot of her customers were railroad men. They were miners. And so if they got hurt on the job, it was important to her that they got better because she liked them. They were her mm. friends, but they were also her customers. Huh. And so she would actually pay the local businessmen to hire these guys to work for a period of time, and she would pay the businessman so he could pay the man a good wage until he got better and he was able to go back to work. And Wow. Yeah. Just, she, just she in was, order to sort of keep her customer base sort of healthy and functioning, and, and but that ended up having the effect of sort of tending to the town's welfare. Right, yeah. And she did this quite a bit. There was a, a great story of a, a young boy. Um, he was walking by the red light district on the way home from school, and she knew this boy, and he was from a poor family. And she pulled him aside, and I, I think he hauled wood for her or something, He'd, some menial task. And then she had him come in, and she made him a cup of hot cocoa, and then she gave him $10. And she told him that he was not under any circumstances to tell his mother where he got that money, but that he was to give it to his mother. And that's the kind of stuff that, that Madam Laura did. Wow. And, and these women really had the effect of, as you talk about on the show, economically sort of stimulating the towns. I mean, the way we sort of dial, you know, uh, uh, distill it down in the show is that, you know, the the men were sort of like, all right, th these guys are just working mining or, or herding or whatever. But it was the women that that turned the settlements into towns, more or less, because they were the ones who needed all the secondary businesses, like the, the shops and the schools and the churches and et cetera. And the pharmacies. And yeah, yeah. So after fashion, yeah, they did do that. So getting back to our timeline, um, once the wives started showing up <laughs> and the men started marrying, um, they, you know, of course, objected to having prostitution in their midst. And so 
that is where we started seeing a lot of uh, laws coming about. The Women's Christian Temperance Union, um, their mission was not only to cut out the alcohol and illegal gambling, but also prostitution. And mm. so we actually started seeing whole governments that, like it or not, um, were turned against prostitution. So that's where the hypocrisy comes in, because most of these towns, what they did was they established some sort of a fine and fee system where uh, generally once a month, the girls were rounded up and taken to court, and they paid a fine for being prostitutes. And it came about where in a good many towns in the West, all these women had to do is display the receipt in the window of their brothel, and that way any passing policeman knew that they had already paid their fine for that month, and they really couldn't arrest them in, until you know another month had passed. Oh, wow. It was so, almost like a protection racket. It was. It was a protection racket, uh, That's and, and many other things as well. So the governments of these towns were, um, you know, their coffers were building up. They were making a lot of money right. off of the prostitution industry. Right. Plus, you look at the high rents that madams paid for their buildings, and if you, uh, in a lot of cases, uh, Butte, Montana is one of these. If you research the brothel owners, the landlords that these madams were paying rent to, they were some of the most prominent men in the town. They were family men that had uh, lots of money and big business. And on the side, they rented they rented brothels to whores. <laughs> so, yeah, and nobody really thought much of that. Well, let, let me ask you this, uh, because, you know, it's uh, wonderful to hear these examples of you know, the picture of the madam as this uh, industrious businesswoman. But I'm sure some people have the question or maybe had the question watching the episode, like, wait a second, um, uh, prostitution is often an industry where the women uh, in working in the industry are, are being abused or often sometimes even uh, forced to work or, you know, that they're coerced labor. Um, and I certainly don't think that it's... Uh, typical or or a constant that a woman would be running the enterprise would be the madam. I, I think certainly you, you often end up with, with men in that position of power. So I guess I'd ask, uh, is there a reason that the West would, you know, a prostitution in the West would have adopted a different pattern? Or was that really sort of a a, another dominant strain of of, uh, of prostitution in the West that, that we simply aren't as excited to talk about? Or, or how, how do you situate those issues? Um, I, you know, I do recognize and, and we do tend to gloss over because I, I love talking about the success of prostitution, but it certainly had its downfalls. Of course. Um, it was a very, very, very dangerous profession. Um, you know, these women were subjected to uh, drug and alcohol abuse, disease, um, unwanted pregnancies, domestic violence. Um, uh, in the case of um, Chinese women who were imported over here um, from China, they were uh, kept as virtual slaves. Um, I think the average lifespan of a Chinese prostitute in San Francisco was about five years. Hmm. Um, yeah, and so there wow. certainly, yeah, there certainly was um, abuse. Um, there are some very, very ugly stories out there, and I think it's important that we look at that too. Because as much as they tried to regulate prostitution, and of course it's, it was more regulated back then than it is now, but as much as they tried to regulate it, these um, types of situations did occur. Where I tip my hat to these women is that they, uh, you know, I don't, none of these women ever just woke up one day and said, gee, I think I want to be a whore. Um, <laughs> yeah, they, they were generally forced into it by some circumstance in their lives. 
Um, you look at Maggie Hall, for instance, Ma- Molly B. Dam, everybody called her. Um, she was out of Idaho. She came over from Ireland, and she was living back east, and um, she married well um, to this young man who was whose father was very wealthy, but they kept the marriage a secret because his father wanted him to marry somebody else. When the when the father found out, he kind of cast his son out in the street and cut him off and said, "No more money for you." Um, well, this guy was so well cultured and well brought up that he really uh, had no skills, and so eventually it fell to Maggie to go out there and become a prostitute so that they could make a living. Huh. Um, yeah, and that's real common. You might find uh, a woman who is widowed with several children and. This is in a day when a woman's um, job choices were very, very few. They could become like a seamstress or a laundress, um, perhaps a teacher, um, maybe a clerk in a store um, or a housewife. And so a lot of these women looked at at their choices and went, you know what? I I would like to be independent. I would like to make money. I would like to be a woman of means. Um, It doesn't mean that they are necessarily uh, successful. Hmm. And then, and then, what would inspire them to? Uh, I mean, we're, we sort of portray, I think, probably the best case scenario on the show. But a woman who, uh, you know, says, "Oh man, there's this unmet need out in the West. Let me go head out there and uh, and fill it." Or, or that they were sort of pioneers in their own right. Is that is that tr- the case? That is the case with some of them. Um, Maddie Silks. She was a, a very prominent uh, Denver madam for many many years. And um, she started working the uh, the cattle circuit out in Kansas, and I believe she was running cattle. But then she was like, this is really hard work. I think if I got a couple of girls in a wagon, I could do better, and she did. So she she basically um, got this wagon with a, with a canvas bathtub in it <laughs> and rounded up a couple of wayward gals that were looking for something better to do with their lives and traveled to the uh, cattle circuit before she went to Denver. And she opened, I'm going to say she opened her first brothel in Denver in the 1870s or 80s. So it was and a traveling, like a, sort of a, a traveling brothel, like a, almost like a, a gypsy caravan style that she took around on the circuit and, until she finally put down roots. Right. Yeah. Wow. They called them um, camp followers. Wow. Because, I mean, you look at these cowboys, they're out in the middle of nowhere. They've been, you know, handling cattle all day. They're lonely. They don't have money or a town to even go to to spend money if they had it. And here comes this wonderful caravan full of these beautiful women. What would you do? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Man, that's that's so that's so incredible. And, and I don't know. I, I love the way you talk about these things because I think so often when we hear this part of the history, it's sort of like – you know, it's sort of Deadwood style. It's like, all right, here's the gritty version, you know, yeah, brah, right. you know, like it, it's that version of it. And, and you really bring to life the fact that that these were even the, you know, uh, the the people who who weren't there under good circumstances, that these were these were humans. And this was like a, a part of regular human life at the time and place. It, yeah. And it was. And and again, you know, what bothers me about that and and why I write about these women is I think we need to bring them uh, to light and bring them back to light and and put that human touch on them to know that they, you know, they had desires. They, you know, uh, most of them, they really just wanted to perhaps marry well, marry one of their customers so they didn't have to do that anymore. 
Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, the failure rate was pretty high of that. I think of uh, women like Squirrel Tooth Alice, they called her. <laughs> they have the, I'm sorry. Every name that you've mentioned on this show so far, Millie Silks, Squirrel Tooth Alice, these have all been solid gold names. I, I know. Say. They're awesome. And, and that's another fun thing about it is when I can actually find their real names, um, it's kind of rare because some of these women, they change their names as often as they change their stockings. And so they're, right. they're kind of hard to track. But Squirrel Tooth Alice, what had happened to her was um, she was kidnapped by Indians when she was a child. And they kept her for a couple of years. She was just a young girl at the time. And her family was actually able to buy her back from the Indians. But in the Anglo eyes, um, Alice had been ruined by the Indians because certainly she lost her virginity while she was with the Indians. And she tried to marry once. Um, that marriage didn't work out. And then she married a man. And the, and the way they put it in the history books is just beautiful. He forgave her for being a victim. Hmm. Right? How do you do that? He forgave her for being a victim. He allowed her to uh, start up in the prostitution trade. And she actually ran several successful bordellos in, I believe, Oklahoma and Kansas. And she gained a lot of family respect because her her husband was no more than really a farmer. And so while he's out there scrabbling around, she's pulling in 50 to $200 a night. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. So is there some reason that, uh, I mean, maybe maybe there's an obvious reason, but, but is there a reason that, that it was uh, that women were the ones who were the sort of business owners or the managers in this? I mean, so you've established that prostitution, you know, that was an industry like any other or not like any other, but, you know, that it was another industry of the West, but that this was one that was not just staffed by women, but run by women. Yeah, that's that's kind of a fun, unique facet of the of the industry, isn't it? I think um, in general, because some of the more elite brothels, you know, you look at like the Dumas brothel in Butte, Montana, and um, Sadie Orchard's place in Hillsborough, New Mexico, and Madam Millie in Silver City. These women, uh, they were women. And so they knew how to work with men. They knew how to treat men. And oftentimes their customers included the very prominent men of the city, um, Mm -hmm. government officials. And... Uh, bearing in mind that not all brothels provided just sex. They also provided a place where these men could come and relax away from the public. They could play some cards. They could be entertained with some singing, dancing. Um, They could have dinner with the girls if they wished, um, that sort of thing. And so you look at it that way, um, a lot of government officials found kind of a refuge in these brothels because what went on in the brothel stayed in the brothel. And because these madams worked with the officials and and businessmen, when others came in seeking advice, they knew what to tell them because they knew what was going on around town. And so um, it just made sense that that these women, you know, it was a woman's world inside the brothel. And so it just made sense that they're the ones that ran the places and worked with everybody from the high dollar customers down to the lowly miners and uh, worked with their girls to make sure that everybody was successful. Wow. And so you draw a line from uh, between these women sort of gaining power in that brothel scenario by, I guess, yeah, having the access to power and hearing hearing people talk, hearing men talk and that sort of thing, to um, women being able to gain more power in the West politically than their, than their counterparts back East, correct? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, I have seen um, some evidence of it um, here and there. 
And especially when it came to influencing um, politicians and local law enforcement as to how to handle business matters, how to handle the laws and regulations, um, that sort of thing. There was an incident in Tombstone, Arizona, where uh, they fired a police officer because they found out he was taking too many handouts from the brothels. They were they were paying him off, but it was protection money. And so when they when they fired him, the leading madam of the town and I wish I could remember her name. I don't remember her name, but she actually wrote a letter to the editor of the newspaper and said he has done a fine job. He is doing a fine job. He needs to retain his job so that we can all continue working together in harmony. So is that level of power related to the fact that, you know, women uh, gained the ability to vote in those Western territories before uh, uh, before the rest of the nation or? Boy, I wish I had an answer for that, but I, I couldn't <laughs> tell you because, I mean, you look at the history of the suffragettes that finally got the right to vote for us and, and uh, I don't see any madams amongst them because a That's madam's true. opinion didn't matter in public. You know, and that's true. But yeah. the interesting thing is that those is that it was uh, well, I, I don't know enough about the history of the women's suffrage movement specifically to to venture. But what was interesting was that some of those uh, were uh, when the states were, were simply territories that it that it led the rest of the the rest of the rest of the nation, which is an interesting bit of history that, you know, uh, that I wasn't uh, taught um, that, you know, Wyoming. Uh, women were able to vote in Wyoming in 1869. That's that's what fifty years before national suffrage. Yeah, yeah, pretty amazing, isn't it? Well, I'm here talking to author and historian Jan McHale Collins. We will be back in just a moment, so stick around. The Dead Pilot Society podcast brings you hilarious comedy pilots that were never made, featuring actors like Aubrey Plaza, Andy Richter, Paul F. Tompkins, John Hodgman, Adam Scott, Molly Shannon, Busy Phillips, Tom Lennon, Anna Camp, Laurie Metcalf, Felicia Day, Michael Ian Black, Adam Savage, Paul Shear, Ben Schwartz, Skylar Aston, Mae Whitman, Josh Molina, Ben Feldman, Nicole Byer, Jason Ritter, Sarah Chalk, Steve Agee, Jane Levy, Allison Tolman, Danielle Nicolette, Casey Wilson, Anna Ortiz, Lorraine Newman, June Diane Raphael, Kieran Chipka, Ed Week, Zach Knight, and Carrie Kenny Silver, John Ross Bowie, Jamie Denbo, Janet Varney, and many more. Listen at MaximumFun.org, iTunes, or wherever you download podcasts. Welcome back to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I'm here talking to author Jan McHale Collins. Again, this is kind of a forgotten piece of history. Uh, how do you go about researching such a thing? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> um, it sounds like it's a lot of hard work considering well, your answer. I have fine-tuned it now. In, in the old days, I would start with um, second- and third-hand resources, you know, books written by others. And kind of. And I still use them to a great degree. But now I've learned how to um, manipulate the census records so I can start looking women up. Um, I look for them in the newspaper files. Um, I have been in the basements of dank dark, dusty courthouses with cobwebs in my hair, <laughs> looking up old ledgers. <laughs> and uh, I there's a million ways to find them. But um, and it is a process. I call it I, I say that it's it's not hard, but it's tedious. Yeah. Um, and the the worst part for me is I may think that I have found out every single thing I can about a woman. And then I turn around twice and there's something else about her. And, mm. you know, they just kind of pop up. Um, much like, you know, uh, outlaws do, you know, they they just show up in a newspaper or a document somewhere. And it, I'll be honest, it seems like they kind of they kind of chase me around. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like I'll be researching something not related to prostitution at all, because I, I do uh, write other history as well. 
but a name will pop up and it's like, well, what are you doing here? You know, I'm not even researching you. I'm researching the history of this building or whatever. And (laughs) yeah, and they show up. Um, One of the funniest instances I had was uh, when I wrote my book about uh, wild women of Prescott, Arizona. There was a, a madam that had the largest property in town and um, this thing was big. It had a parlor house on it, but it also had cribs, which are the, the little one- and two-room houses that girls would work out of. Um, there was a restaurant on the grounds. It was so big that it actually extended halfway into the street, uh, one, huh. yeah, one block off of the main drag through town. Um, and when they uh, realigned the red light district and where it was supposed to go, they actually made an exception for her. And said, oh, yeah, this piece is included in the red light district, too. But her name was Lida Winchell. And I, I became really fascinated with her. And I could not figure out what my deal was with her. And I couldn't find anything out about her. And uh, kept looking around. Well, I finally got to access the estate files of another madam, which is very, very rare. Um, in most cases, when a prostitute died, her family uh, burned her belongings, threw everything yeah. away, gave it away. So I was able to access this estate, and in that I found Lyda Winchell's obituary. And the, the long and short of it is she ended up um, – her maiden name was Crumley, and she was from my hometown of Victor, Colorado. And Really? Yes. And I, I find this out while I'm doing research in Prescott, Arizona. And, <laughs> yeah, it, I call it the weird stuffometer. <laughs> it, just, it just came around, and there and there was Lida, and that explained everything. And her uncles were actually quite notorious. I've known their family for years. I've written about her uncles, and then here she comes along, and you know, like, like she didn't want me to forget her. You literally don't know this. You literally know this woman's family. I do. Like her descent or her 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 family to this day is in town. You're you're familiar with them. Yes, they're they they're not in Colorado anymore. The um the notorious uncles actually ended up moving to Nevada, where they did quite well. They opened some <laughs> of the very earliest um, casinos. Wow. And yeah, and they were the first casino owners to bring big name entertainment to uh, Nevada. So they and one of the one of them became a uh, his son became a state senator. So they really cleaned up their act after they got to Nevada. <laughs> yeah, and then here comes old Lida knocking on the door. So <laughs> is the guy is is the guy a state senator now? Do you have anything over him? Hey, I know something about your your right. great great aunt or whatever. No, no, they have uh, actually the state senator accidentally uh, he crashed in an airplane uh, he, and died. Yeah, and it was that that was too bad because he was very well known and well liked in Nevada, but. But no, they. Uh, I'll be honest. They rather wish that I would not write about Lida. But I'm. I'm <laughs> like. But you've got. You know. You've got this interesting aspect of your, of your history and your family, and you. Yeah. You need to recognize it. That's so fascinating. Do you have any particular, uh, you know, woman who whose story is your favorite, or or who you think is most emblematic of this of this type of person? Oh yes, that would be Laura Bell McDaniel. Um, she's the one I mentioned that was in old Colorado city next mm-hmm. to Colorado Springs. Um, I have a, a friend, a colleague and collectively well together and separate. We've been researching her life for over 30 years. Really? Yes. And we're actually working on a project about her, but she, um, is the epitome of the representation of a madam done good. Um, she, uh, married in Missouri 
came to Colorado, uh, found herself a single mother, married a local liquor dealer, and I, I suspect he's the one that introduced her to the prostitution industry. Um, a month into the marriage, he shot a man to death in her living room. <laughs> Right. And so yeah. she left there, went to old Colorado City. Um, her very first brothel was right next door to a huge beer garden that was like almost half a block uh, big and um, went on raising her child, um, brought her mother and her sister up there, bought houses for them to live in, um, sent her daughter and some nephews to Colorado College, which is one of the most elite colleges in Colorado. Wow. And yes, and did very, very well. And in 1917, with Prohibition coming on, uh, they planted stolen liquor in her brothel and arrested her for it. She managed to get acquitted, and the very next day was driving up to Denver um, with her niece and another, another one of her old friends. And some authorities happened to witness her driving off the road and the car flipped and she was killed. Wow. And we highly suspect that because the authorities were the only witnesses that they probably had something to do with it. Wow. That's a real, that's a real outlaw tale. That is a real outlaw tale. And yeah. (laughs) Set up by John Law. Right. Yeah. It's a, it's a very interesting story, but unlike so many women whose families shunned them once they went into the, the industry, her family actually embraced it, and I think wow. that's wonderful. And um, uh, there were instances, there was one instance before the time when they hid the liquor in her house, um, they uh, were really trying to shut down the red light district. There were, they had actually burned down the red light district at one time, and she was heavily insured and built right back up. Um, but when the going got too tough, um, her best uh, – the best thing that she could do and that she thought of doing was she married the financial editor for the Gazette Telegraph newspaper. And oh, yeah, really for the, for the, for the, that's, that's a very, uh, you'd imagine that'd be a very, uh, well-established, uh, sort of traditional sort of fellow. Yes. And knew all the wealthy men of the town and was running in big circles and he was pretty much her protector. Um, yeah, it was a very, very interesting thing um, to happen. And I'm sure the, the authorities were just aghast that she married this guy. Yeah. And then it was after he died um, a couple of years into the marriage that um, the authorities really started getting on her case and and uh, and trying to arrest her for every little thing to shut her down. And when they couldn't shut her down because she was too wealthy and powerful, they killed her. Wow, that's the way we uh, look that's, at it. Yeah, what an incredible tale that would make the man that would make a make a hell of a movie is what it would make. We're actually actually we have that goal in mind. <laughs> that's that's uh, where was, we're going with this. I kind of suspected you did, and that's why I said it. You were like, we're working on a project, and I was like, mm, are we in L.A. know what that means. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, I think it would be. I would actually like to combine her with Lida Crumley um, because they probably knew each other. And then there's a third woman, uh, Gabe Wiley, who is equally interesting. Um, Gabe uh, was um, from Italy, and she came to America with her parents. Her father died, and she and her mother moved to San Francisco. And following the San Francisco earthquake of 1906, Gabe's mother died. So here she is. She's about 14 years old, um, a girl alone in this world, without a friend, without family. 
So she was forced into the prostitution industry um, by her own free will. She she was working a legitimate job by day and then working in the streets at night. Hmm. But she eventually ended up in Prescott, and she fell in love with this man named Leonard Topp. And he kind of acted as her pimp. Um, as as one woman put it, he liked to scuff the toe of his boots on her, meaning he kicked her around a lot. Um, mm. He stole from her. He you know he was not a good a good man. But she, you know how um, uh, when people are abused to a certain extent, they kind of come to fall in love with their abuser. Yeah, the old Stockholm syndrome. Yes, that's it. And so this is what happened to Gabe. Well, Leonard in 1915, he finally left her, and he went to Los Angeles. She tracked him down, and on New Year's Day in a Los Angeles liquor store, she gunned him down and killed him. <laughs> and, yeah, and, but it was obvious when you read the newspaper files um, on the incident that she was out of her mind. She didn't even know that she'd done it for a long, oh, for wow. several days. She was like, where's my Leonard? I love my Leonard. Where is he? And so uh, fortunately in that instance, there were some uh, some very uh, powerful women in uh, in social circles that took pity on her and helped pay for her defense. Um, Adela Rogers St. John's wrote about the the incident and the and the trial coverage for the Los Angeles Herald. Her father actually defended Gabe, and she was acquitted. So she goes back to Prescott, Arizona, and she reopens yet another brothel. She had several of them. And one day in 1925, she sees that there's this movie playing, and it was um, about uh, redemption. It was about a, a girl that was in the prostitution industry. They saved her, and she married and went on to live happily ever after. And so Gabe thinks, hey, this would be a fun movie to go watch. So so she goes to the theater with one of her girls and gets into watching this movie and realizes it is about her. The movie huh. They made a movie about her without her permission. So she sued the movie company and won. She got a settlement. What? Yep. <laughs> That's incredible. And because of that incident, um, that is why there is a privacy law in the movie industry even today that you can't make a movie about someone without their permission. No way. That's why now people get to option their movie rights. Yep. Uh, Isn't that, that wild? <laughs> that is unbelievable. I was going to say just at the point where she killed the guy, that's as good as, you know, the hero of any Western or, you know, any of the, uh, I, I don't know, the famous names, uh, I, I don't know, Jesse James or whatever. That story's as good as any of those people. But then for her to then, none of those people sued the people who made a movie about him and then established a precedent that of a legal precedent. You know, the things that if you look them up, they draw you right back into the prostitution industry. That's why it was important, I'm saying. <laughs> so. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. Well, when did this when did this end? I mean, was cuz cuz look again, you know, when people talk about brothels now, you know, I think there's maybe one or two examples and that seems sort of like historical holdovers in the US, but what you know, what uh, when did this sort of system of, of you know, these sort of powerful madams uh, – or I guess you have that story from your childhood – not your childhood, the, the, the elderly fellow who told you the story about the, the madam that he remembered. Uh -huh. Why did her – why does her kind no longer walk the earth? Um, well, we, we've actually gone through a few different eras of prostitution. And uh, what we've been discussing is – I look at it as prostitution in the, in the West – and that that effectively ended with World War One. Um, 
World War One got taken pretty seriously. Um, we had a lot of military bases in America at that time. And where you find a military base nearby, you are going to find houses of prostitution. Hmm. And the military basically got tired of their soldiers getting drunk, get, uh, going AWOL, getting in fights, um, coming back on base drunk, uh, disappearing for days at a time. Um, you know, there there was a lot of violence associated with, you know, with the industry, of course. And so right. Um, soldiers were not beyond killing each other and and killing prostitutes and all kinds of mayhem was going on. Um, most importantly to the military, they were coming back with venereal diseases. Oh. And so the military really started trying to put their foot down. Um, now, one of the ways that they tried to handle it initially was in 1916, um, General John Blackjack Pershing uh, was in Columbus, New Mexico, and he actually decided to regulate prostitution. He, he tried to uh, build a set red light district. All of the women of the town had to work within that red light district. They, huh. they had to have health exams weekly. Um, if it was found that they were infected with any sort of disease, they, they uh, could not work in that, in that district anymore. But it, again, it was largely unsuccessful because there were so many women that were like, I don't want to be under the government's thumb. I'm a freelancer. Or they were property owners and said, I'm not giving up my property to go work in this red light district, you know, and not have property in my name. So yeah. it, was, it was a failure. But, but basically— but It was government-run prostitution. That's incredible. Yeah. Oh, and that's not the only instance. There was an instance uh, of even bigger proportions in Salt Lake City in about 1911. Um, the government there, uh, there was a prominent madam named Dora Topham, and she uh, was a working madam in Ogden, Utah. And Dora took a different look at prostitution. She looked at it as um, she called herself the greatest reformer of the world because she was actually against prostitution. But she recognized um, that as long as there's someone willing to sell it, there's going to be willing, someone willing to buy it and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So her job, in, in her opinion, was to take these girls in, let them work for her. She could keep them safe. She could keep them healthy. And in that sense, she could make sure that the industry ran smoothly. So the authorities actually hired Dora to come down to Salt Lake City. Um, they let her select a city block in which to build an entire red light district that would be run by her on behalf of the city. So Dora did this. It was called the Stockade. And they built wow. a big wall about around it. And they built several parlor houses and brothels within the walls. And then Dora's job was to go and convince these women that they should stop working in what was the illegal red light district and move over to the stockade. And she was approaching everybody from the streetwalkers all the way up to Madam Helen Blazes. That was one of the madams she tried to talk into moving over. Helen Blazes, another wonderful name. I know, isn't it? I know their names are just, they kill me. But um, yeah, Helen said, I'm not doing that. And she moved to Colorado. But uh, so Dora... Got this place running. Um, immediately there were issues uh, because they were still under state law. They had to stage raids. And when I say that, they would call ahead and let Dora know, hey, we have to stage a raid tonight, so make sure everybody's on the up and up. Wow. And Yeah. And um, But ultimately, pressure from the state um, and the feds um, effectively closed Dora down. The authorities of Salt Lake City ended up having to arrest her for the very job they hired her to do. 
And Salt Lake City, of all cities, to to do one of the you know the most uh, prudish cities in America, one would say. One would say, yeah. Well, the way they looked at it, there was um, the you know the those that were for the industry. They're like, you Mormons, you think it's okay to sleep with more than one woman and have more than one wife. So what's wrong with women servicing more than one man? Yeah. Sure. And so, yeah, the Gentiles and the Mormons really clashed on that. And I, when I did my research in Utah, I fully expected to get escorted to the border and told not to come back. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't the Mormons running the, running the legal or the semi-legal red light district, yes. to be clear. Yeah. Got it. Just um, amazing. It, it's so funny hearing these stories because it strikes me that – uh, you know, you really describe, hey, where there's a military base, you're going to have prostitution, right? Anywhere, if you've got a lot of men and they're all alone and that, you know, they've got a, they've got a human need, you know, you and, uh, and it's going to be served one way or another. And, you know, then you talk about the, you know, you really wonderfully humanize the women who, who went into this, uh, uh, line of work and, you know, without, without, uh, uh, you know, w- without while having a clear-eyed uh, uh, view of its flaws, you know, you see that uh, the kind of work that it was, and that uh, th- they knew what they were doing. Is there any sort of uh, conclusion you come to about you know ways that we should think about prostitution differently in uh, America or in the world today? Or do you have you come to a different understanding of it from your work? Um, yeah, I, I have, and realizing that it is still going on. Um, and knowing that, you know, we look at Nevada, Nevada is, is legal. I am, um, I'm very, very proud to be friends with Madam Susan Austin. She mm. runs the Mustang Ranch in Nevada. Mm. And, um, we're talking about a posh, beautiful resort. I mean, they have, mm. they have a restaurant on site. They have a pool. Her ladies are model material. Um, everything is run on the up and up. And I'm very, um, proud of her for what she's been able to accomplish. She's a nice, nice lady, and she's the the ultimate surrogate mother to these girls, and and a mm. good madam should be. But I look at that, and then I drive down uh, the seedy avenues of any given big town, and you're mm. you're still seeing it. And these women are out there; they are not protected. Um, they are addicted to drugs. They they are subject more than ever to domestic violence and and abuse. Um, and if I had to offer an opinion on it, if someone were to ask me, do I think we should legalize it? I would say yes. Mm. That'll get your listeners going. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have a sort of a trend on this podcast of, of folks who are for legalizing or abolishing certain, uh, you know, uh, have, have a very uh, sort of civil libertarian bent. Um, uh, once you look at these industries, uh, you know, it's... Uh, it's really fascinating because I think the way that you portray it is that, you know, you've got these towns, uh, you know, sort of taking a profit off of the vice because they know it's something that is going to exist anyway. And so it's sort of like, you know, they wag their finger at it on on Sunday and then, uh, you know, take uh, take 10 percent on Monday or whatever. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And and like, well, OK, maybe that's not, uh, you know, maybe that's a better situation even compared to what we have today, where today we deny that it's a, a form of uh, commerce at all. When if you look at the history of it, it, it seems like it seems like it was. And uh, exactly. it seems like. Like the the people who participate in the in the commerce uh, are, regardless of what you think of its moral value, are. Uh, I mean, would would you say that they're worse off today than than they were in you know these madams' time? Or I, I suppose I it's hard to make that are. comparison. Uh, I th- I think I think they are worse off. Um, I I'm looking at instances more, and when I 
more recent instances, and this goes all the way up to 1989 when the um, Oasis Bordello in Wallace, Idaho closed. Mm-hmm. Um, in Wallace, uh, in Salida in the 1950s, and in Jerome, Arizona, in all three instances, when they were finally able to close down prostitution for good in those towns, they saw an immediate upswing in sex crimes. Hmm. And in one instance, uh, in Salida, they actually, uh, that was involving Miss Laura Evans, and they actually went back to Miss Laura and asked her if she would reopen. And really? She, yes, but she was of retirement age at that point. She had rented her rooms out to railroad workers. and Oh, I'm out and, of the game now. Yeah. 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 She was like, no, I don't want to open back up. Well, I know that she played poker with some of her boarders, and so she was probably quite good at cards, and she wanted to keep <laughs> taking their money that way. So, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I found I would like to know more on the on the statistics of what happened in these towns when when prostitution was actually closed down once and once and for all. Wow. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's, it's so wonderful to, uh, you know, hear about again, this, this sort of like unexamined slice of history. And, uh, and it's so wonderful that you've been able to sort of make a, make a niche telling it. I mean, do you find that people have, have an appetite to learn these stories? Oh yes. Yeah. I, I do quite a few programs and, and presentations and it's always a full house. So, <laughs> so somebody, somebody <laughs> out there is listening, but Adam, well, I, got... I want to thank you so much for having me on, on your show and also on the podcast. This has been really wonderful. I've had, a, I've had a ball talking to you. Oh, well, I, I, I have a ball learning this history. I mean, and, and it's, uh, you know, I, I often think of, you know, the, the wonderful thing about, about journalists and historians and, you know, and especially when people say, oh, do you, you know, do you consider yourself a journalist or a historian? And I say, oh, no, of course I don't. I'm just, I'm just piggybacking on your, on your work that, that if you weren't doing it, we wouldn't hear about it. You know, it's not like history is just lying, lying there on the ground for you to pick up. It needs to actually be researched and, un- and uncovered and uh, uh, right. put together so that we we know what happened at all. And so, you know, if you if you and I assume there's others, others researching the topic as well. But if you if you weren't, then we you know, these stories would just be lost. So thank you so much for doing it. All right. Take care. Thank you one more time to Jan McHale Collins for coming on the show. If you guys love that interview as much as I did, I hope you look her up on Amazon. Check out some of her books. Her work is really so fascinating. And that is it for this week's Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. We will be back in two weeks, so please tune in then. Our producer is Shara Morris. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend or subscribe to us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. I don't know what app you use, man, but whatever it is, I hope you subscribe to the show on it. Okay, and don't forget to leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe, Uh, probably on the iTunes store, but probably some of the other services. They got comment systems, too. Uh, It really helps us out when you do. So I hope you do. And again, Adam Ruins Everything is currently in our off season, but we will have new episodes for you sometime in 2017. No official date yet, but they are coming. And you can find clips and full episodes at TrueTV.com slash Adam Ruins Everything in the meantime or check out the Watch True TV app. Thank you guys so much. We'll see you in two weeks. Bye-bye. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.